Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem. Uh, I want to just extend my greeting and my welcome to you guys. Uh, just a quick uh, bit of family uh, business uh, before we jump into our text uh, this morning. Uh, pastor Tom, in a couple of weeks, uh, if you're not going to, you're not going to see him for a little while because him and Deb are going on a sabbatical. Uh, and so, so from my perspective, uh, you know, a sabbatical is not a vacation, but it does extend from the word Sabbath, which is, uh, which is rest uh, and reflection, and that's the way that, that the Sabbath is designed for us, even on a weekly basis, right? We work for days, and then we Sabbath, and, and so Tom and Deb are going to head out. They're going to see some family. They're going to spend some time in rest, and so I want you guys to be aware of that, and I want you to, as you see him, just let you know, let him know uh, that you'll be praying for him and uh, that we'll miss him on that time, and so um, we're really excited that they get to, to jump into that. So, um, hey, my freshman year of college, uh, uh, my first semester was pretty rough uh, for me. I went to the University of Nebraska uh, in Lincoln. And uh, I remember my first semester, one of the classes that I had to take was, uh, was the chemistry class. And so you enter into the school, and there's about 400 students uh, in your class. And so it's really easy uh, just to skip and go get Krispy Kreme donuts or bring Krispy Kreme donuts and not pay attention. Um, and so I went into this class, and I, and I honestly, I mean, I was a really good student in high school uh, and ended up a really good student. <laughs> uh, but my first semester was just a challenge because I was just relationally jumping into relationships and enjoying uh, my time getting to know people and, and figuring out these new, you know, college rhythms. And so uh, I remember getting ready for the first exam uh, in chemistry. I thought, wow, I, I don't know very much. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and so we decided, my roommate and I decided to go to a little study session before, uh, before the exam. And so we get there, and this gal at the table, she looks at me, and she says, Seth, do you know uh, the answer to blah, 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 blah? And I went, I'm sorry. No, I don't. Uh, and then she keeps working. And then I had to build up the courage in that moment to say, hey, uh, do you know uh, what chapters we're supposed to be in for this exam. And she looked at me and she's like, you're kidding, right? And like in this moment, I like I opened my chemistry book and it's, you hear the, you know, like you open a brand new textbook for the first time and it's like everybody at the table was attuned. They're like, no way. No way, this guy's in for it. And I got to the test, and I looked at, and it's like, it's like eight questions, that's all the test is. And I looked at the first one, I thought, wow, I don't know that one. Flip, I don't know that one either. Flip, got to the third one, it's like, I don't know that one either. You start to panic in this moment, right? And you go to the fourth one, you're like, oh, bro, phew, I can do this one. Fifth one, nope, sixth one, yep, seventh one, nope. And I chicken scratched my way through it, and I ended up passing, but here's the deal. It spurred me into studying, <laughs> you know, like it, it kicked my, my wheels into, into motion in a lot of ways, right? And so here we are, we're in the, in the, the letter of Ephesians, right, from Paul, this, this letter to the people at Ephesus, and he spent the first three chapters really walking through this theology. This is the gospel message. This is who God is. This is who we are. This is who we are in light of Jesus, right? And so he's been processing and walking through this. And so here's my encouragement. As we shift from that portion of the letter, we're shifting into the second portion 
and water, which is this all about living. How does the gospel interact with our story, right? And so as we're shifting, though, I want us to, I want to encourage us to not, like, like, let the first three chapters go, right? So, like, dive. Keep diving back into it. Keep going backwards uh, and keep going back to the truth uh, and, and allow that to kind of kickstart and stir your wheels into motion because so much of life, everything that we need to know about life is, is grounded in that, in that theological truth about who God is and who we are in light of that. So keep doing it, right? Don't just like move past it and move into the living portion, okay? Right? And last week, you might remember that we, we talked about this question that, uh, that the world is asking uh, of the church. And one of those questions is, does your belief actually transform lives? It's a very powerful question because sometimes the assumption then is that what they're seeing is that this doesn't, this doesn't have a transformational effect, right? The gospel doesn't have a transformational effect in our lives. And so when we looked at Ephesians 3, 14, 21, right, what we're doing is we're being drawn to our knees as we begin to understand with greater clarity and depth the love that Jesus has for us. But it's not just a love that we can understand or comprehend or wrestle with. It's a love that we can step into on a daily and weekly basis as we enter in, right? And so we begin, so yes, does the love of Christ actually transform lives? It, it most certainly does, and it, cer- and it certainly can. We're in this process of being made into Christ-likeness. But this week, as we jump into chapter four, as we move into the gospel living side, these new questions, I think, rise to the surface about what the world is asking about the church. And one of those is, the, is this question, um, how can I trust the church who's done terrible things? in the name of Jesus, which is a super fair question, if we're honest. Um, another one of those questions is, what about all the hypocrisy? What about, what about the people who say one thing but act another way, right? It's another very, very true statement, oftentimes for me included, right? And then the other, the final question really uh, is, is this, like, is your church, um, is, it a, is it a church that seeks to serve the neighborhood, or is it just this internal self-focused group, right? And so there's this disconnect between what the world sees and what we know we believe, but yet also with the disconnect in how we live, right? And so at some point, we have to move on from studying the gospel to actually living out the gospel. And we have to ask this question, how does God's story, right, those first three chapters, how does that actually interact with and change my story, right, which then changes how I interact with the world, Right? And so we're, try, we're trying to connect the dots here in terms of how the gospel does this. And so what we're going to find, uh, and if you have a Bible, I invite you in a, to, to turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 1. What we're going to find here in this passage is that Paul lays out for us as a church this, this incredibly, uh, incredibly beautiful picture about who the church is designed to be. And if you're following along in your notes, um, that may not help you. I'm sorry. I, tried, I, I changed it a little bit. And so instead, we're going to talk about three different things. We're going to look at um, how we get to, to walk in unity, uh, how we are empowering diversity, okay? And then also, then third, how we grow into maturity together, okay? So here's where we start in chapter 4, verse, verse 1. It says, I, this is Paul, right, therefore a prisoner... For the Lord, remember Paul is still in prison, um, but I love that he doesn't say I'm a prisoner of the Romans. He says I'm a prisoner for the Lord, right? Um, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling to which you have been called, right? Now, in, in English, our, our time, our, like our, our passage actually kind of starts with these two words, I, therefore. And if you ever like study the Bible, you read the question, you've always been trained like to say, what is the word therefore, therefore, right? And so it goes back and it's talking about all these, these first three chapters. This is the gospel story. This is who he is. This is what, who Jesus is. This is who we are. And this is who we are in light of Christ. And so he's talking about this, this transformation story and this love that we can understand in in light of all of that, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. But if you, if you know anything about Greek, you might know that, that Greek sentencing is very wonky. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't flow like English. And so you, subjects can be at the end and verbs can be wherever they want to. Uh, and so you have to like track these things. And at the very beginning of the sentence is actually the word urge. It's the word urge. This is the very thing. And so even though in English, we see this word therefore, it says therefore in light of this, that to show emphasis in the text, what Paul does is the first thing he does, is he says, I urge you. I urge you. Right? Now the word urge, um, the word urge actually means uh, to call someone to your side. So if I, I were to look at Brady and say, hey, I urge you, it's this idea of like call you from there to come to my side, to come alongside of me. Now Paul is in prison, so that's not what he's saying. He's not saying come to prison. There's something figurative here. There's something, a, a manner of life that Paul is eff- actually referencing. It's not I want you to come to me physically. It's just I want you to embrace something about me that I want to teach you in my way of life, okay? One of my favorite passages in Scripture is this passage uh, from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. And he says, I urge you, this is the exact same word, I, I call you alongside of myself, right, to be imitators of me. So Paul is saying, he's like, man, I, I, I call you from where you are, and I want you to imitate me. Later on in chapter 11, he actually says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, right? So he's saying, I want you to call you from where you are. I want you to come alongside of me, and I want you to be here with me, and I want you to imitate me, right? But then he's talking to the Corinthians, and so what he says is, that is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, Right? It's this lifestyle behind it. And he says, by the way, it's as I teach them everywhere in every church. Trivia, how many, how many books are in the New Testament? 27. Do you want to know how many come from Paul? 13. So like, just right around that half mark of our, of our letters, of our, of our stuff in the New Testament comes from Paul. And it's crazy to me that when we reread re- Paul, and we have this tendency to put Paul on this theological pedestal. And we look at Paul and we're like, man, like Paul is so good. Like, look at all this rich stuff that's coming out of Paul's mouth. It's incredibly good. It's incredibly good. And yet, if you're not careful, you'll miss these tiny little blips where Paul says, behind all of my theology, or at least in conjunction with my theology, is a way of life that I learned from Jesus. And that's tremendously, 
tremendously important. And so what Paul is doing in our text, if we go back to our text, he says, I urge you, I'm calling you, I want you to walk in a manner that is worthy. And the word walk, it comes from that Hebrew, which is, which is halak, which means every area of my life is meant to resemble Jesus. Every single area, it's like this life is worship posture. Every single area of my life, not just how I come to church, not just when I come on Wednesdays, but like how I get up in the morning, how I go to bed, how I spend my time, how I drive, how, how do I live at my workplace and work in this manner, every single area of my life. He says, we're called to live in a manner that's worthy of the calling to which we've been called. He's talking about this, all this chapter three, this gospel calling, right? There's, there's a theological belief that we need to learn about Jesus, but there's also this, this life on life that's transferred via the Holy Spirit to me as I begin to live out the gospel, right? This is super important. So what starts with belief in Jesus becomes this action and this lifestyle, this overflow in our lives, right? It's this life is worship stance, which is why when we talk about Cave Table Road here, this is why this is so incredibly important, because what we're talking about are the rhythms of Jesus. And we can say, you can believe all of the right things, but you can totally miss the lifestyle, and you can miss the rhythms of Jesus. And these two things need to always work together. It's an inflow and it's an overflow type of reality. It's super important. But then he qualifies. Paul says, this is how. You want to know how? This is what it looks like. He says this. He says, right, with all humility and with all gentleness and with all patience, bearing with one another in love. And this one is especially important in light of today's world with all the division and all the hatred, uh, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is the how. It's powerful. You may have seen those uh, TV commercials uh, for the new, um, these new Apple watches, right? these new Apple Watches that say uh, that you can take an ECG anywhere, which is an electrocardiogram. So you can measure, right, these, these wavelengths, like the, uh, the, I don't even know how to talk about it. I'm not a scientist. You can measure these wavelengths of these electrical impulses that are coming in and causing your heart to beat. And so you can discern whether or not your heart is in a regular beating rhythm or if it's in an irregular beating rhythm. And so it's like, as you, let's take a, let's just pause, let's stop, and take a spiritual ECG this morning. And I want to ask you, like, are you humble? Are you being gentle? Are you being patient? I have a three-year-old at home who does not want to go to sleep on time. Patience is incredibly hard. Are you patient? Are you bearing with one another in, in love? And are you being diligent to keep the peace? Because remember, what's happening in the letter of Ephesians is that there's this blending of people groups, right? There's the Jews and there's the Gentiles. And what, what Jesus did is that he creates one new humanity out of both of these people groups. So it's no longer Jews and it's no longer Gentiles. It's, it's Jesus's people. This is the church. And so we come together with all of our dysfunction in all of our mess, in all of our gifting, 
things and all of our passions and all of our you know, experiences and all of our stories. There's this blending together. And the tendency is for us to, to feel like there's this brokenness and these dividing walls in between us. And what Paul says is like, gosh, is there humility? Is there patience? Is there love? Right? Let's keep the main thing the main thing, right? And he goes on and he answers the question and moves on from the, the how to, to answer the question like why? Why is this so incredibly important that we would bear with one another in love, that we would be eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace? And here's what he says in verse 4. He says, there is one body, one body, right? This is the new humanity that we're talking about. There's this blending together. It's no longer two. It's not two bodies. It's one body. Uh, I love this in, in Galatians 3. He says this about, about this body um, in this next verse. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Is, he, is, is Paul saying that these types of things are no longer an issue? No, this is how we're created, right? We have ethnicities. We have uh, jobs or role statuses. We have gender right? This is all according to the way that God designed it. But when it comes to the body, we're talking about the removal of these lines that would divide us. And he says it's no longer two or three or four or five, it's one. There's one body and nothing more. So from evangelical free church to, to Lutherans to Methodists to Catholics, anybody who has a relationship with Jesus, we are one body. This is incredibly important. He says we are one body. But he also says right? He also says that uh, this is one spirit, right? And so it's not like as he's distributing the spirit, he's like, Seth, spirit one, you, spirit two, spirit three, spirit four. And it's not like these fractions or these miniature spirits. It's one Holy Spirit who indwells every single person. One. One spirit. So one body, one spirit. Uh, Guess what? We are called and we have one hope, Right? We have one hope, so we're all moving in the exact same direction. We all want the same thing, and it's what lies at the end of this thing called life, and it's this hope that we have in Jesus. There's one, one hope, not multiple, just one, one hope, and he goes on, right? He goes on, and he says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, right? There's a sense in which we as a church are permeated with oneness. We are walking, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of that which we're called, which starts with unity. And it revolves around the one main thing, which is Jesus, right? I love how... um, Uh, Eugene Peterson, who's kind of like the pastor for pastors, uh, he says this. He says that you were all called to travel on the same road and in the same direction. So stay together both outwardly and inwardly. Same road, same direction. Here's this church moving along towards Jesus. So there's this idea that we get to walk in unity, which I love that. Uh, but here's the deal. Like, just because we, are, uh, we have this unity, because we have this oneness, it doesn't mean that you and I or that we all look the same, sound the same, right? We all have different stories, right? There's a sense of diversity. So um, you guys may know the name, or many of you probably know the name Tom Brady. Tom Brady uh, is arguably arguably one of the history's greatest quarterbacks, 
I say that with, with hurt. Um, um, he really is. He's just, he's just tremendously good. He's tremendously good. And wherever he goes, the team flourishes. Here's what I want. To, I want you to imagine for a second, though. Um, what if uh, he now plays for Tampa Bay Buccaneers? What if uh, Tampa Bay, if we could reproduce Tom Brady and make him every single position? What if Tom Brady was the quarterback? He was the running back. He was the wide receiver. He was the offensive lineman. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture Tom Brady as an offensive lineman. <laughs> you know, um, he's the defensive lineman. He's the cornerback. He's the defensive backs. He's the special teams. He's the punter. He's the kicker. He's everything, okay? Now, just imagine, right? Uh, because unity does not mean uniformity. This is where we're going here, right? Um, if you have an entire team of Tom Brady, your team will suffer, won't it? Because Tom Brady is always going to want to be the quarterback. So just imagine the quarterback trying to throw to somebody who wants to be the quarterback, but he has to receive it, right? So in a real football team, right, it's actually, it's actually there's unity in the midst of our diversity that actually makes a team thrive. And that's what actually makes a team good. A team of all Tom Brady's would not be good. They would not win the Super Bowl, right? Most likely. <laughs> I say that, but if you somehow could do that, maybe somebody's going to go home and do it in the computer and, like, CGI this. Um, but the reality is, is that he probably wouldn't win. Now, we don't have Tom Brady here, but we do have a Tom, and we do have a Brady. <laughs> so check this out, right? <laughs> this is awesome, right? So uh, <laughs> I asked them to both send me a picture. Brady sends me this first one. I'm like, holy cow, like this professional, like just photoshopping person, and he's like mocking me with his hair. Like, look, look what I can do, you know? Um, <laughs> You know, and Tom's like, I'll take a picture right now. So here we go. Um, so Tom and Brady. Tom and Brady each have very unique gifts, right? They're both very unique individuals, right? Tom, uh, in his pastoral care, right? Like in the way that he comes alongside of people, right? And Brady and his worship gifts and, and those things. Like, like the, the reality is, is, that, is that together, if, they were, if the entire team was made up of a Tom or if the entire team was made up of a Brady, right, it would be... Unity equals uniformity. That's not the way that we need to be, right? It's actually in this blending of gifts that God causes the church to grow. And that's unity over uniformity. You see, what's, what's so good about this is that, is that we can actually have unity in the midst uh, of diversity. Think about, the, think about the message that we're sending the world. Like if we as a church are saying we need to be uniform in everything that we do, we're, we're sending a single message. But if we actually send to the world in the midst of our brokenness, here's all of the things that we could possibly disagree on but we are unified in the midst of that diversity. That's a much powerful message because that's where the gospel is so powerful as we say we're gonna make the main thing about the main thing. And so we have this ability to walk, we want to walk in unity, but we also want to empower, embrace and empower uh, diversity, right? So check this out in, in verse, um, verse seven. I think it's in verse seven. Uh, yep, 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 where'd I go? I'm losing my spot here i got to find it. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts uh, to, to men. Right? Now, um, 
this, this, uh, this quotation is actually taken from Psalm 68. So you, you heard Brady uh, talk about that a little bit earlier in the worship. So if you were to go back to Psalm 68, 16, you would, or verse 18, you would find you would find this passage. Now, just as a word, of, a word of noting, whenever you see the Old Testament quoted in the New Testament, uh, the likelihood is that it's very significant. It's very intentional. So you always want to go and find that. Now, the reality is that Psalm 68 is arguably potentially the, the, the psalm's most difficult psalm. <laughs> uh, it's very challenging. Uh, and so I think in order to make this complicated thing as simple as possible, here's what I think what Paul is doing. Paul is using Psalm 68 verse 18 by changing a few words. He uses it as his, as his base and he's trying to summarize the entirety of Psalm 68. He's trying to point us to the, to the larger picture of Psalm 68 in this, which Psalm 68 is classified as a victory psalm where God is victorious over his enemies and he wants to give good gifts to people, right? So then what Paul does in verse 9 is that he adds his own commentary as to why he selected this verse. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so here's the thing. I think that what Paul is doing here is that first and foremost, he is talking about Jesus coming down to earth, his victory over death, and therefore his resurrection. And in his ascension, what he does is he plunders the world. And in so doing, as the victorious king, he can give the spoils of this victory to his people. He can give the, the, the spoils to his people. He belongs, and what he does is he gives gifts to people. But as a part of this, there's also this, this subtle exodus theme running through this, right? Because if you remember, Moses, when he leads the people out of Egypt, he leads a host of captives, doesn't he? Right? He takes them with them, and eventually what does Moses do? He goes up onto Mount Sinai, and he comes down with a gift, What is that gift? It's the Ten Commandments, which represents the Torah or the law of God. If you go back a couple of chapters in Ephesians, we looked at this dividing wall of hostility, which we identified as primarily the law of God, because the law of God was only given to the Jews. It wasn't given to anybody else. And so in Jesus' death, as he fulfills the law, he removes it as a barrier, right? He removes the barrier of the law. And so what does he do? In his victory, he now distributes these gifts to every single person. It's not to the Jews, it's not to the Gentiles, it's to every single person he gives a gift. And the gift is his presence through the Holy Spirit, right, which gets manifested in these, in these spiritual gifts. But I want to just pause for a second because when we think about the Holy Spirit living inside of us as Christians, I think that we have this tendency to take it for granted because we don't know life apart from the Holy Spirit. We really don't, right? As Christians, we don't because we don't live in that world. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was very present and he was active, but not in the same way that we are today, right? Because back then, the Holy Spirit came and he would indwell people at God's choosing in order that they could accomplish a task. So say, build the tabernacle or something of the sort or the ark, right? So the Spirit would fill them for the time they accomplished the task and then he would leave. But for us, the Holy Spirit is very present and active in our lives. 
consequences. So every single time you feel the nudge inside of you from the Holy Spirit, it's that presence of Jesus via the Holy Spirit that's calling us and reminding us, this is so incredible, I want you to live like Jesus. How cool that is. That's a part, that's a part of our internal wiring now. There's this built-in corrector, like, yeah, I want you to live like Jesus. Follow us, such a cool thing. And the reality is, is that we can't fully be like Jesus. We know that. But what the Spirit does is because no one person is the key to the church other than Jesus, right? And so what does he do? He distributes these gifts that collectively get distributed so that in the collection of all of these gifts, together, we create one body and we move together, we move forward. It's this really, really cool, cool picture. So look at verse 11, right? This is where he starts this. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So these gifts that we're talking about, the, the things that Jesus is victorious in his death and he gives gifts to men, we're talking about these, what we call spiritual gifts, right? Uh, it's something that is, is, is imparted to us that is unique, uh, and, and each person gets at least one. That's my conviction. Every person who, uh, at the time of their birth, as they are converted or as they are transformed into the likeness of Christ, the old creation is gone, the new creation has come, we at least get one gift, right? And that's so neat, the way that God has designed each and every one of us to partake in, in a unique way, to build his kingdom. And there's five different passages throughout the New Testament where you can look, you can find those. There's uh, Romans 12, there's 1 Corinthians 12, there's uh, 1 Peter 4, and then, uh, and then Ephesians 4, and one of those has two. So, um, so you can actually look there and you can find them. But here's, here's some of them, just listen to this, right? Uh, there's prophecy, there's service, there's teaching, there's exhortation, uh, there's giving, there's the gift of leadership, there's the gift of zeal, there's the gift of acts of mercy, uh, the gift of wisdom, the gift of knowledge, the gift of faith, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, uh, the gift of discernment, the gift of speaking in tongues, the gift of interpretation uh, of tongues, the gift of um, apostle, the gift of administration, the gift of hospitality, right? And, and here's the thing, this is, they just kind of keeps going, because even though these are the ones that are listed, it's 20 plus gifts, we don't really think that this is a comprehensive list, right? There might be a lot more of those gifts that the Spirit longs to give, and yet every believer gets at least one of those gifts, right? And it's in this passage, he lists off five specifically. He says, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, right? So the apostle uh, comes from the word to send, which means like someone who is sent, right? So an apostle is, is a person who uh, is sent. A prophet, uh, their primary role in scripture is to call people back to right relationship with God. So this heavy, strong challenge there. Uh, the evangelists, they wanna preach the gospel uh, both inside the church and outside the church. The shepherds are the caregivers uh, and the teachers are the teachers, right? We, we understand that, right? But here's what I think is what's happening because this is a letter to the church. What I think that Paul is doing is he is identifying five offices within the church, five different roles of ministers, right? And so what he does is that he supplies the local church with people with certain gifts. But there's very intentional in its purpose because this is what he says in verse 12 is that these five different offices or people with these gifts are called to equip 
the saints for the work of ministry. Do you get that? Right? Pastors, our role, one of our primary roles is to equip you for the work of ministry. Right? To equip you for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Jesus Christ. And so here's what happens is that Paul starts with these five different offices, but by the end of this, he shifted to the idea of every single believer. So he says, like this, this, these are the leaders, they lead this, but at the end, the building up only happens. The building up of the body of Christ only happens when every single person in the community is actually identifying their spiritual gift and using it for the sake of the other. This is not on, honestly, this is not selfishness here. This is not on the, on the shoulder of the pastor, right? The pastor, I am a leader in this where I get to say, hey, follow my example. Let's do this together. But my job, our job is actually to equip you for ministry so that together you and I, I need you, you need me, together we actually build up the body. That's a powerful picture of the local church, right? Um, and when I think about the, the American, uh, when I think about the American church, right, there's these programs, these programs that we want to consume. Uh, we just want to consume them over and over and over. And yet I am convinced that what the church needs to become, especially in the next 10 to 20 years, in an anti-church world, the church needs to become a training grounds for people launching into the world. Check out this video clip. First danger, hypothermia, and most critical. Why? Because you still have the ability to think. Say it. Still have the ability to think. The decisions you make during this stage are going to determine whether you live or die. There's a reason you're not breathing goldfish. Huh? There's a reason why you're not breathing. I don't know anyone who can stay alive without breathing for 15 minutes, CBG. Are you a coroner? Because pronouncing people dead is not part of our job description. What do we always say? This is it. We never stop, Jake. Not from the cabin to the tarmac. We never stop. Hi, CBG. Understood? Yes, CBG. Okay, Jake, in the swole. Hodge, you're up. You're with the dummy. All right, now. Three letters. Three letters will get you people a cup of hot coffee and a blanket. What do you say, goldfish? Gosh, you're not that cold anymore, Sinichi. You're not cold anymore because blood is moving from your outer extremities to your heart. That's why your arms won't work. You can plan on spending roughly 60% of your career in a mildly hypothermic state. Sinichi, may I have a word? Why wasn't I informed of this? You know, we have classrooms. And your assignment is to simply teach the stages of hypothermia. Sir, in about two and a half minutes, they'll understand. 
Permission to carry on? Sure. Uniquely powerful clip, isn't it? I, I love as this, as this guy comes in, he says, why well, wasn't I informed of this, right? And then what does he say? Your job was simply to teach the stages of hypothermia, right? You have, we have classrooms for this, right? And it's in some sense, it's like this idea of like, Seth, your job is just to teach the theology of chapters one through three. And I don't think that's true. Because what we need is we need a shift. At one point, we need a shift from that also to this way of life living. This is why I think disciple making is so incredibly important. Because what he does is he jumps into the water with them. And I love that line. He says, in two and a half minutes, they will understand. And I'm convinced this is in part what the church needs moving forward in the next 10 years. It's that we want to be a platform to equip people, to, to send people out into the world where they live and where they work and where we play. Because guess what, guys? Every single one of us are called to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Every single one of us. It's an every believer type of ministry. And it's something that when we do together, it actually builds up the body, right? But here's something that's interesting is that even though we have unity we, and we have this empowering diversity, we can walk in unity and we want to empower diversity, right? I'm convinced that, that Satan, one of his greatest tools right now is to take diversity and to shift it out of the unity because when we remove diversity from the unity, we remove Jesus from the equation and he can then use diversity to create division, and it's tremendously, tremendously significant. And it's so powerful, right? Um, the, the reality is that as like, an evangelist, if we have evangelists in this room, like, oh, that's my spiritual gift. Evangelists want the church to look more what? Evangelistic. The prophets, they want more prophecy. They want stronger calling. The teachers, what do they want? They want more teaching. And so for each of us, we want each other group to conform to us, right? But he, Satan, wants to remove the, the, the diversity from the unity so that he can actually create division. And when you think about Galatians 5, he talks, uh, Paul talks about um, being under the influence in this way. Here's what he says. Here's what happens when, when we're not in the, in, under the influence of the Spirit. He says, here's what happens. There's hatred. There's discord. There's sexual immorality, there's jealousy, there's impurity, there's fits of rage, there's dissension, there are factions, there's envy, and there's conceit. You see, what, what Satan does is he makes Jesus no longer the main thing, and he wants us to focus on just what we want, and yet in contrast, Paul then says, is that instead, being under the Spirit, we have the opportunity for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the picture of the church. And it's a beautiful picture. And so not only do we have unity, not only do we want to empower diversity, we want to encourage this growing towards maturity. Check this out in verse 13. Here's what he says. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness 
of Christ. I, I love that there's a content thing here. We're talking about the knowledge of the Son of God, right? There is a content here that we need to believe that is accurate, that is presented in chapters one through three. But guess what? As we're moving, we're moving towards this mature manhood, which is not about you or me. It's actually the collective nature of this new humanity that all of us together, as we're being blended together in all of our imperfections, in all of our passions, in all of our spiritual gifts, in all of our joys, in all of our sorrows, together we actually have the opportunity and the privilege to walk together towards Jesus. That's an incredible, incredible picture, right? So the final goal here of Paul is that as ministers and as saints, together we are rendering service to attain this unity, which will only happen at the second coming of Jesus, right? That's the only time that will be a reality. But until Jesus comes, we are this group of people who are on the same road, traveling the same direction towards Jesus, that we become more and more like Jesus together, not further and further. And it's such a beautiful picture of the church. And as a result, here's what he says in verse 14. He says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful Schemes. You see, the more that we grow together, the less that that's going to happen. I don't know if you guys know this. This is crazy. Uh, in two days' time, just try and wrap your mind around this. In two days' time, as a world, we produce as much information as we did from the dawn of humanity until the year 2003. In two days, we produce that much information. There's a lot of information floating around in the world today, isn't it? Right? But it's not just about what we produce, it's also about what we consume. Did you know that in 15 minutes of scrolling on your phone, you consume as much information as your great-grandparents did in an entire month? 30 days, 15 minutes. Do you think that the world is ripe with information subtle and not so subtle that contrasts, contradicts Jesus? that wants to buy, get you to buy into something other than who Jesus really is and what the church is really supposed to be about. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I went on a trip to the Philippines, uh, and as we landed, we got in this boat because we had to ride the boat to the other city, and as we did, the waves were just massive, just you know, and most people go to the back, but I went to the front because it's like a roller coaster, right? And as you do it, you hit it, you're slammed from left to right and forwards and backwards. You're constantly trying to do this. Guys, here's the reality. We live in a world where we can't control the waves. The world is going to be the world. They're going to have their deceitful schemes. They're going to do what they're going to do, and I can't control that. But here's what I can do. I can steer the boat. And I think it's a tremendously important because we can't control the world, but we can steer the church. We can steer the church, right? Guys, we are called to walk in a manner worthy of that which we have been called. And the manner of that walk is nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ. 
It's tremendously, tremendously important. This is how Paul ends, verses 15 and 16, right? In contrast to the lies of the world, we get to speak truth. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, not one way, not two ways, not three ways, not on Sundays, not on Wednesdays, but on every single way, we together get to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a beautiful, beautiful portrait of the church, which pushes us back to the prayer, right? And I want to invite you to the posture of Ephesians is in the posture of on the knees and love, that this is what we would be praying for the church over and over and over again, right? That we get to walk in unity, that we get to empower diversity, that this is not the burden of a few, but the responsibility of every single person, and that together, though, we actually are gonna grow into maturity, into the likeness of Christ. I go, wow, that's incredible. That's a beautiful picture for the church. It's a beautiful portrait, and one that we desperately need in the world today. I wanna end by um, just promoing uh, Discover uh, You. If you wanna learn more about how God has uniquely wired you, this is something that we're gonna start doing a lot more frequently because we want to equip the saints to live out the ministry that God has called you to do. And this is called Discover You because it matches with Discover Salem, and it's all about how you're shaped for the road, how God has uniquely designed you and gifted you to do a powerful work in today's uh, world. And I just, I'll end with this. Because, and this is one of the things that I, that I love about the position that we're in, and this is one of the reasons why I feel like God has called me even into this role for this time, is because I love to cast vision at 30,000 feet, right? There's something fun and powerful uh, and humbling about the way that God instows a vision for a church that we say, yeah, we're drawing up the battle plans and we're going to do this, Right? Right, that's 30,000 feet, but at 3,000 feet, I wanna use this platform right here to springboard us into the world and to promote disciple-making relationships throughout where we live, where we work, and where we play. And at 300 feet, I, I want us to see these teams utilized and equipped and empowered to, to fulfill the ministry that God has uniquely called them to do. But here's the deal, at three feet right here, guys, this is where I want to put on the armor with you because I wanna charge into the battle and do this together. I really believe that. And so I wanna call you to join that mission with me as we live out the gospel in this world. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, as we begin to wrap up our time uh, this morning, I pray that, that we would be reminded, and hopefully this is reverberating in our hearts, that, that as repeated over and over this morning is that we are called to walk in a manner worthy of that which we've been called. Lord, we can, we can study the gospel until we're blue, and there's a, there's a reality that we need the depth of the truth inside of us, and so much so that we, we can continue to wrestle with the dimensions to comprehend the love that you have for us, but there is this, this need for us to get down on our knees to absorb and to experience the love of Christ that says, no matter what in life, Seth, you're good enough for me. 
And yet there's this life that you call me to on the other side that says, now I want you to go live it out. I want you to overflow into this world. And so, Lord, would you give us a strong desire and an excitement to walk together as a church in unity and in diversity and into maturity. In your name we pray. Amen.